Hello and welcome to the Demographic Cast. This week I'm joined by Jack again and <laughs> and by Dylan Coende. How are you doing, both of you? Really well, thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, how are you both feeling about the new the uh, the new restrictions being uh, finally, or the next step of the restrictions being eased happening today? Are you looking forward to going to Very shops good. or the gym or? Whatever. Yeah, I'm desperately looking forward to um, going out and having a proper meal. Yeah. Uh, I've been chained to my desk for far too long. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I'd echo that. Like yeah. like we were saying before the, the, the podcast started, I haven't really had a chance to go out yet and see how busy everything is and get in the pub or, you know, go and have a, a nice meal with, with friends. But that's what I'm looking forward to the most as well, is just being able to do something that isn't, sitting in my bedroom or talking to my friends via a call or working so yeah that would be nice sure. everybody's talking about the pubs but i feel like the restaurants are getting overlooked yeah it's a good out, point. being able to go out and have an actual meal is yeah something that yeah. i've definitely missed and i've probably missed that more actually than going yeah. to the pub you know it's like just the, the generic thing to say isn't it but going out for a nice meal i've probably missed more than uh going to weatherspoons yeah i think i have too Dylan, do you want to give a quick uh, introduction for the uh, audience about who you are? Sure. Um, so I'm uh, currently completing a postgraduate law degree at Cambridge at Cambridge University. And um, previously, I did uh, my I did my first degree at UCL um, in history and philosophy of science. And I'm also running my own um, edtech startup, and it's called OmniSpace. We're doing a lot of things, but right now the focus is on building a an app that uh, improves memorization and accelerates your learning through uh, advanced mnemonics, uh, gamification, and machine learning. So it's pretty exciting times, but we're getting quite a lot of interest from from investors, and it's been fun juggling that with with law. If all I was doing was law, I'd probably lose my mind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the challenge of, of doing both, and uh, I, I mean I've a lot of people will know me from um, the fact that I crowdfunded my way to, to Cambridge. The fees are extremely high, um, in my opinion, um, prohibitively high, and uh, it was important for me to has been important for me ever since to to be vocal about ways in which we can. Uh, in which we can remove some of these hurdles uh, in access to, to higher education. Do you think that it all sounds really amazing, particularly your, your your startup? I'd be really keen to learn more about that. But do you think, I guess, from those themes, that it's your view that education, particularly higher education, for most people is is inaccessible and not enough, not even nearly enough, is being done to ensure that people have the right opportunities to be able to gain the sort of educational levels that they should be entitled to yeah I, I i think that there is an inequality of opportunity and um i think when when i when i first launched my campaign i didn't realize just how much attention and national attention it would get and i think that's largely because uh, it struck a chord and a lot of people are in uh, have experienced the, the the same the same barriers, and um, part of what I'm doing at OmniSpace on a pro bono basis is providing students who don't have access to funding, giving them advice around securing scholarships and 
um, setting up their own crowdfunding campaigns. And I think that's, that's it's a real shame, really. It's a, it's a failure of the government. It's a failure of big institutions like Cambridge University. Um, and I think the short-term solution is for individuals like myself to be generous with our time and resources and to empower those in, in our communities um, because big governments, big, big institutions are glacially slow at, at uh, bringing about change, systemic change. And so I, I wasn't going to wait for um, the government or, or for, for Cambridge to, to do something about this. Um, but, you know, the long term solution, of course, would be to 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 address it on a more systemic level. Mm. Do you think that these sort of these institutions like Oxford and Cambridge are outdated then that they need uh, would you say they need reform at all and to 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 encourage or to dismantle this this inequality in terms of opportunity that people that we had that they you know create Yeah I think there is definitely room for reform um I think it's not just an issue with Oxbridge it's, it's an issue with a lot of elite institutions, of course, Oxbridge has is sort of in a league of its own in terms of its his yeah. in terms of its history. But you know, quality education is is available at so many um, so many universities across the UK and you know in, in the US. There's a similar um, situation with Ivy League uh, universities, and and I think that th there's an important conversation that needs to be had about how we um, how we, you know, di how we democratize access to to education without diluting quali the quality of education, mm. um, and I think that largely stems from other universities outside of the Oxbridge bubble uh, learning from places like like Oxbridge, you know, learning about what sort of taking lessons on um, what makes Oxbridge and universities. Uh, in that league um, so good, you know, the, the whole supervision system, the ratio between uh, uh, tutor and, and, and students, Th these are important uh, qualities of a, of a good education. And I don't think that should be limited to, to Oxford. I think that's something that more universities should, should, should adopt. And I think, it, it, you know, intervention needs to take place much earlier, much, you know, much earlier than, than university, because a lot of these inequalities uh, of, of outcome um, stem from a lack of uh, support much early on. So, you know, from primary school, really, um, you see that there are so many students who, who, have, who, who don't have the, the same advantages because of the schools that they go to, because of the GCSE subjects they pick, because of the A-level subjects they pick. And, and that, you know, at every hurdle, you're, you're seeing you see those disparities. And I think um, if we're going to address the situation at, uh, at the university level alone, then, then you know, it's, it's, it's way too late for so many. Whose responsibility do you think it is to drive forward those interventions? Do you think that it is the responsibility of those institutions? Do you think it's the responsibility for individuals like yourself, like us, to call for those changes? Or do you think it's primarily the responsibility of central government to, to drive forward those changes? Um, or, you know, is it, a, you know, like always, a sort of nuanced mixture of, of all of those factors? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the honest answer is, of course, um, it's a combination of, of all, really. Um, if, if governments, you know, don't, as, as I mentioned earlier, gov governments can be incredibly slow at implementing change. And so, realistically, the, the, you know, the ideal situation is that the gov governments would be able to organize themselves and, and, and create this kind of change um, rapidly, but that's not, that's not realistic. Um, and so I'd say the onus is on, is on, you know, the, the institutions where, where these, where, where education is, is, uh, is, is being provided. Um, and, and also on, on the, on individuals to, you know, to be, to be self-starters, to be, um, to take the initiative to, uh, to problem solve and, you know, Technology and social media is was a real asset for me. Uh, if, it, if it weren't for you know platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, I certainly wouldn't have been able to spread my message um, and and the need for me to secure this funding. So I think that there's a lot that individuals can do, um, but you know I think in an ideal world um, you'd have both the institutional and individual working hand in hand. I was wondering what your thoughts are on um, sort of public versus private school in that case, because um, obviously there's the difference between the two is there's a uh, financial barrier to to one as opposed to the other, um, and that does that do you think that's healthy for a society like ours? It's, if we're trying to encourage um, equal opportunity for all, surely I, I mean in my opinion I don't think I think public and private schools probably or having private the existence of private schools basically counteracts that it, it means that people have a way of accessing supposedly better education only if they have the money to do so again it's it's a matter of what's what's descriptively or what's um what is the reality versus the ideal world in an ideal world you wouldn't have those two categories you'd have everyone having the best education um and I think um, that that isn't too far fetched. I, I don't see why there is a need to uh, to privatize education so early on. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, my, my honest opinion is private schools. I, I never attended one. I, I, I personally don't see um, you know, I don't really see the justification. Um, I think normally people would say, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to entertain those arguments. It's been a while since I've actually given it thought. Um, but what I would say is I think education should be, you know, should be treated as a public good. It should be something that everyone has access to, provided they have the, 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 um, the drive and, 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 and the ambition. And even then, you know, these are traits that we can train people to have. Yeah. Even if an individual doesn't begin with the, the uh, sort of explicit intention to do really well at school, there are ways in which you can train um, individuals, students to, to bolster that, that willingness to learn, to be better. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the private versus public education argument's really interesting. 
and I think that there would be more justification for private schooling if the the gap between education levels wasn't so vast in this country. I mean, you can you can not pay to go to a very very good school in the same area as people could not pay to go to a very very poorly performing school. The the levels of education in this country are incredibly inconsistent, and if we had a decent yeah, not even a good or a great level, but just a really decent level of uh, education for all. That was the base. And then there was the ability to pay. There would maybe be more justification for it. I'm not saying I would necessarily support it, but we don't have that. Um, and, you know, it's why I wanted to ask you sort of whose responsibility is it to drive that forward? Because we've probably been having these conversations or people have probably been having these conversations for, for many, many years. And we haven't really seen that much change. And like you rightly point out, you know, society as a whole is incredibly slow at moving these institutions and the levels of these kinds of things forward and then you know we come back to the, the argument and brett is probably going to rein me in a bit here because we're getting right off topic but who's you know what is the responsibility of government then if it isn't to provide these these services as a as a public good at a good level to use and, and in, invest those uh that tax money um, in the right way and implement a, a good level of public service, then what is the responsibility of, of government? And I think that we're talking about, you know, three topics that underpinning the conversation will be that question, maybe, that, you know, what is the role of, of government and is government fulfilling uh, that role properly? And I think that the ed education, particularly the levels of education in this country is a really sort of interesting case study for, for that. Definitely. Uh, I wanted to sort of move the, the conversation on to, to mental health side, just because uh, Dylan, I spoke to you before the uh, podcast and asked, you know, what you'd be interested in talking about. Education was one, so we've covered that. Mental health. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I actually have a kind of, uh, when I was thinking about this, I, I sort of thought that um, when we talk about education on, on this show, we have done quite a bit in the past, and we've spoken about mental health as well. We often talk about how uh, the two are kind of coincide, are, uh, are connected because it doesn't seem like people necessarily have a proper understanding of mental health. Um, and I, I'm talking all the way up to the government. People seem to have different uh, definitions of what mental health issues means. Um, and they definitely don't have the same ideas of how to deal with them or how to prevent them. Um, so I was thinking, I was wondering what your thoughts are basically on, on, on young people's mental health specifically and the situation the country's in in terms of tackling this mental health crisis amongst young people. I mean, this is a, a huge topic. It is. And um, it's, it's so difficult to pin it down and, and just talk about one thing. So what I'll try and do is just give a broad, a broad view um, overview of, of my thoughts. I'll start by talking about the last year, the last 12 months and the impact COVID and uh, lockdowns have had um, on, on young people's mental health. Um, I, I happen to, to know um, someone who, who works, who's dedicated their life um, to, to, you know, tackling, tackling mental health for young people. And I'm having conversations with her all the time, and and in my experience, what I've what I've found over the last twelve months is that COVID and the restrictions uh, have revealed so much uh, 
so much so much of the the lack of prepared preparedness of the government to deal with crises public crises and and the secondary consequences of having all of these lockdowns has been increased loneliness and isolation increased uh stress and anxiety and you know suicide rates have, have skyrocketed and these these this reality is not inevitable i i do believe that young people could have been more prepared for for these you know really despairing situations um and I think that that does happen at the education level. Uh, the fact that there isn't a module at university or, or um, you know, at school, you know, at GCSE level, the fact that there isn't a mindfulness a mindfulness session um, that we that we're all obligated to attend, that I think is is an issue because, again, mindfulness, uh, the ability to to be resilient. Uh, to be calm in the face of in the face of adversity these are skills that you cultivate in the same way that you're taught um uh, arithmetic and, and and languages you know it's it's so important i think for us to completely um reform the way the way in which we educate people and, and the way in which we educate young people and and help them realize that education isn't just about you know um rote memorization and, and, and sitting exams. It's about uh, cultivating a character, good character. And, and I think the last 12 months is, has really, um, it's revealed so much that is wrong with, with the way we've set up the education system and the detrimental impact that's had on, on, uh, on mental health. Um, in terms of in terms of what what more we could do, what I, I I think it's so important that we that we incorporate as much research and and you know hard rigorous evidence of what works um, when it comes to you know good good mindfulness practices. That I myself you know I've been an avid user of this great app called Calm. I'm not sponsored by them, <laughs> but it's it's a great app for me. It's a mindfulness app. I've been using it every day, and it's become part of my routine. It's it. I feel, um, I feel, sort of anxious not to use it, um, and it's it it's one of those things that I think, you know, had I been introduced to it much sooner, or, you know, those types of practices much sooner, I'm sure I would I could have avoided a lot of you know stressful moments moments that that felt quite overwhelming um and yeah so i mean that, that there's more i could say but i'll i'll uh, i'll give you guys an opportunity <laughs> well i think the the pointed out the kind of amount of innovation that's gone on in this space shows the need that people have had you know the demand for some kind of solutions to a lack of mindfulness a lack of the ability to, to be present and to take time away from how hectic life is has shown how many people have, have wanted that to occur but also how many you know 
private companies have stepped up and, and provided a service for people to be able to to aid them with that whether it be calm or whether it be headspace or whether it be you know this plethora of youtube channels or podcasts that are focused around these issues you know there the, there's no doubt that more and more discussion has occurred around these topics around mental health around mindfulness around spirituality because of the epidemic of of mental health suffering that's going on in this country the the where i worry is is again coming back to the kind of the conversation we were having beforehand is how slow a pace policy moves compared to society are we doing enough to step up and try and solve some of the issues that are underpinning the mental health crisis i know that when i was at school we had one counselor who was spread very very thinly around a lot of students we had four colleges each college had a counselor uh, that's four counselors amongst what i think was around 2000 students it just is that that just isn't good enough but even that was better than a lot of schools had are we educating properly around what mental health is um are we trying to normalize the experiences of anxiety or stress or pressure um and give young people the tools to be able to deal with those exp those experiences properly um i would say that we're probably not you know are, are we is the healthcare service funded in a way that properly gives doctors and nurses the ability to treat patients in the correct manner you know and look at cases on an individual basis and not medicalize an entire industry where that might be great for some people but for a lot of people it won't be you know have have, have we got the tools to to um to defeat this this crisis at the moment i would say that we probably don't and dylan i think that you you hit the nail on the head when you said that coronavirus has highlighted not just issues with the healthcare service but also lots of other infrastructure that has been seen to be lacking um when it comes to to dealing with crises you know whether whether it be mental health whether it be healthcare whether it be the um the social safety net whether it be the criminal justice system there are lots of of areas that have been ignored for too long um that the coronavirus has highlighted so i hope that if anything can come out of this it's that we're more aware of where those issues are and more willing to try and plug them um but I, th I think there's a lot to be done but luckily there's a lot of movement in this direction and, and hopefully we can start to tackle some of those cases because things like you know young people attempting to commit suicide young people on antidepressants young people trying to access counseling those numbers continue to to get higher and higher and that obviously isn't isn't a good thing you know those services need to be there and, and young people need to be equipped to be able to deal with that stuff properly mm, for sure i would echo those those points that you've both made really because i think it's kind of it's incredibly sad to to see how um you know the mental health crisis has been something that has been you know talked about for several years now um at least and i suppose maybe it's the fact that it's it's difficult to picture or to see the um you, there's not a list of casualties or a statistic of casualties every day from the, this mental health crisis it's like there was the, the pandemic but and has been but um it's it's something that well it's just it's incredibly sad to see that it, it to see it laid bare so so um distinctively over the last year i think it, like we've brought it up several times we every time or every other week we have a guest on this podcast that talks about mental health in some capacity and about how they've had difficulties with mental health issues um it's something that is 
rife within young the young people of um of today um I know that both me and Jack have had mental health issues. I'm sure that you yourself, Dylan, may have had. Um, everybody has at some point in their life, I think. Uh, they will go through mental health issues. The fact that there is no preparation for it in schools um, or at university is um, hor- it's disgraceful, really. Yeah. Uh, we're just expected to be able to deal with this stuff, you know? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the craziest part. Yeah. is that there's yeah. this expectation, particularly, I'm, I'm sure this isn't just in this country, but I think that there is something un- that underpins our culture that expects you to be able to just deal with things. You know, there is this stiff upper lip mentality yeah. that when you face hardship, well, you just, you know, you crack on, you keep your chin up and you get on with it. And that obviously isn't a realistic way to move forward. Um, I, I, I don't know what, no, absolutely not. I, I, what were your both of yours experiences with mental health support at school? Did you have, Dylan, did you have kind of, was there any infrastructure when you were at school, when you were younger, to, to help you kind of deal with or help students deal with their mental health problems? I think we did have a counsellor, but I, I think that, that the issue at school wasn't that we didn't have any infrastructure. I think there was just a, a perception, a stigma even, um, yeah. attached to mental health and talking about how you're feeling talking about you know your stress your, your stresses and um so it was it was the kind of thing that people would want to avoid yeah which is which i think is a symptom of a much larger problem uh, which you know with, with our society which is only really now being addressed um which is that you know that there shouldn't be this stigma yeah. around them are, are you optimistic about that kind of perception changing do you think that the conversation has, has meant that we are getting closer and closer to that stigma being removed, or do you still think that there's quite a way to go? I think there's there's still a lot of, a lot of work to be done. Uh, I am optimistic because I think that's that has to be mm. your starting point if you're going to create change. Um, but of, but of course we, we we have to embrace the reality, and, and that is you know it's it's still very much something that people will try to avoid. People feel uncomfortable talking about. I myself have have trouble um, speaking to friends that I that I notice um, have mental health and knowing what words to use, which vocabulary. Um, it is still very much mm. something that I'm I that I feel very inexperienced with, and and I think that's that's pretty that's pretty sad because I feel quite well versed in in other areas. Which aren't as consequential, sure. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us really to 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 become even more educated on on this topic because it's so much more central to our yeah. humanity. Yeah, I think that's a really really important point, and it's something that isn't particularly spoken about often. It's you know, give people the tools to equip themselves to be able to deal with their own mental health issues, but let's also talk about how we can be supportive people right like you say you know how how can i approach a friend and ask them talk to them in an open way about uh, the, the fact that i think that they might be struggling without them being offended or you know being upset or triggering something within them you know that's again another really important aspect that's that i think has been under discussed and, and ignored and I, I like the fact that they're is more discussion around this area but i think that particularly with the social media element 
of of this there's simultaneously the expectation that you should be very really happy all the time and share with people how happy you are and share with people how amazing your life is but also be really in tune with the fact that we're all really struggling and everything's really difficult and you know it's this very strange kind of uh, dichotomy that we live in and we experience that doesn't lend in itself to a particularly healthy relationship with the, with these discussions these conversations um it's very rare that you 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 put up a picture on, on social media and say uh i'm having a really bad day isn't it you know it's it's rare that you see that yeah Post perhaps really that's picture. what we need more of i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i um yeah i mean i i agree but i i'm, I'm slightly um in terms of whether going back to whether you know we're optimistic about it changing at all in the future i think obviously education is super important when it comes to teaching about mental health issues i think but it also the discussion will come from adults teaching their children as well how to talk about these things um you know it's it's all well and good for uh for a kid to go to school and and have what an hour every week about a mental health uh, about mental health let's say if that was a thing but to go then home to then go home and and be encouraged to you know just put on a brave face and you know have the stiffer the 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 oh god i've forgotten the expression you used the stiff, stiff upper, upper lip, lip. Stiff yeah. upper lip i was gonna say stiff upper <laughs> lip the stiff upper lip thing you know you're not it's not going to encourage that child to to then to talk about those issues when they grow up yeah. um so uh, as much as it is important from an educational aspect to to talk to kids about mental health it needs to change from it for in every generation for it to happen sooner anyway um otherwise we'll just you know it, it'll take discussion. a few years yeah. i suppose <laughs> yeah. maybe a few decades um let's move on to the next to the current events topics current events um the first topic I wanted to talk about this week is the uh, race report that was published by the government uh, last month. Uh, that sort of it was a report into institutional racism, um, but it's received a, a huge amount of criticism, obviously. Um, from apparently, so I, I found I've, I'm going to read out some quotes. Uh, the criticism it's received from health professionals, academics, business chiefs, crime experts. And of course, the general public. Uh, that was from the the Guardian. I, I got that quote. The review in itself um, was criticised for being. This is a quote. F- sorry, the review itself criticised. This is a, a quote from the review itself. Bleak new theories about race that insist on accentuating our differences, and an increasingly strident form of anti-racism thinking that seeks to help. Sorry, anti-racism thinking that seeks to explain all minority disadvantage through the prism of white discrimination. Uh, it also said that institutional racism as an argument diverts attention from other reasons for the success or failure of minority groups, including their culture and attitudes. Um, I, I mean, I'm just going to interject and say, when I was reading this, I, my blood was boiling because I couldn't believe how condescending the, the words that they use are. Uh, it also rejects the terms the term white privilege entirely. As it as being a thing, uh, I would urge obviously people to read this review if they can stomach it. Um, over the weekend, this last weekend, the uh, many groups have called for the review's recommendations to be ignored, and instead called for recommendations from the Lamy report, for example, to be um, instituted instead. 
Um, and I also read this morning that experts are claiming that large portions of the report were not written by those appointed to write it back in July, but instead by officials at Downing Street. Um, Dylan, I was simply wondering uh, how you felt when you first heard about this report being published and, and its findings. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> let's see. I was... I wasn't surprised sure. um, because the conversation around race in the UK is, has for a long time been incredibly superficial. Um, mm. Often, often uh, the government and, and, you know, policymakers and the people having these conversations, um, you know, at a senior level, they often don't really engage with the intricacies of, of individuals and, and the stories behind the stats. And so in on you know on that level I wasn't I wasn't really phased because I, I don't really expect the government to get it. Our government isn't really representative of the people that it that it serves, it's supposed to serve. And so yeah, I guess I was slightly frustrated because I would have hoped by now the government would be more um, would be just a bit more educated on, on these issues, uh, especially given the the Lamy report, the Lamy review, which which in my opinion was very very insightful, and it engaged with all of these issues holistically, and um, yeah, and I just felt like it was much more accurate, much more much more in line with with reality. Um, in terms of the report's dismissal of institutional racism and, and casting it as a distraction from other factors like culture uh, and attitude, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's not a very useful sentence because um, to say that culture and attitude aren't important is is would be equally absurd. Um, what you then need to do is talk about each one and try to come up with try to come up with a plausible understanding, a plausible theory uh, of of how each one works in practice. Dismissing all of all of these factors wouldn't make sense, or paying attention to only one of them would be equally um, not nonsensical. So I think the review, the the report um, is. You know, it commits the same error that it purports to try to address, which is it's trying to focus on trying to ignore institutional racism and the role that's played historically and only focus on culture and, and attitude when, of course, history has a big part to a big role in, in shaping the present. And, you know, institutional racism as a term was coined some 20 years ago by by McPherson. Um, so, um so, so is it Sir Ian McPherson? I think it's, um, you know, it's a very recent term. 20 years isn't, isn't a long time. And, you know, the whole Stephen Lawrence murder uh, and the botched investigation of that, um, that, that very much, that was a watershed in, in, in legal history and in our cultural relations. And I think to say that, you know, all of that, all of the, the work has been done, you know, in, in the last 20 years or so, um, is just frankly absurd. 
and and the Lamb review was only you know a few years ago, like 2017. So I, I just I think if if the government, the current government, thinks that really thinks that all of these issues can be explained away from from institutional racism and the role that's played historically, and and you know it's just it's not it's not very sensible in my opinion. Jack, yeah, have you any thoughts I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and and to me, it's difficult to come to any conclusion other than this report was conducted in a way that absolves the government of the responsibility of, of having to deal with some of these issues. Because and I think it's indicative of the some of the problems that we face in our political system in general. In the to deal with institutional racism, which it, it boggles my mind that we still can't accept that that institutional racism exists in this country but regardless you have to take some responsibility and say we haven't done a good enough job of fighting this we're sorry we're going to try and do better and no government in in my memory has been willing to do that because it's not it, it uh, from a pr perspective and a lot of politics these days is about pr it's not very sensible or it doesn't seem to be very sensible and actually i think it'd go down really well if a government turned around and said we haven't done a good, good enough job in this area. We're going to do everything we can to, to improve. This this was clearly conducted in a way that wanted to find that there was nothing the government could do to um, work on improving uh, racial equality or, or dealing with systemic racisms in this country because the government doesn't want that to be a priority. And we're talking about huge issues within society that need, that need to be dealt with. Um, so, uh, you know, I, it was disappointing to see that. But again, like Dylan said, not particularly surprising. Um, I think that, that dealing with these issues, a lot of the solutions to these issues, in my opinion, underpin a lot of the conversations we've been having in that it comes from central government taking first responsibility and then saying, we're going to enact policy that's going to tangibly improve people's lives and give people better opportunities that's where this comes from because that's essentially what we're discussing you know i think that it's really important that we have conversations about historic um racisms where how 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 are these things ingrained in our society um how can we deal with the fact that they are oftentimes not something that we are consciously aware of but actually built into the institutions that um have formed in this country over hundreds of years but what can we do today as the british government to enact policy that will start to tackle some of these inequalities. And there are things that the government can do straight away that will start to do that, like giving people better educational opportunities, like investing in the healthcare system properly, like ensuring that people are paid a good a good wage for doing the, uh, the, the job that they're doing. Um, you know, like like actually trying to tackle some uh, of the, the uh, drug gang problems in, in this country that disproportionately impact um, certain communities you know there are things that the government can do today that will start to tackle some of this stuff and we as a society can have the conversation about you know the historical implications and the the attitude that people have towards um racism or you know how we want to conduct our anti-racisms but that's the government's role to, to enact policy um and the fact that that this government has no interest in doing that i think is an abdication of their responsibility and that's what frustrates me more than anything I think is that we're more more and more looking to not take responsibility for for our problems than we are looking at taking a proactive um response to, to the problems that we face and uh, it, it, that was the same with covid it's the same with this 
I think that you know that's it's it's a real shame, and yeah. we won't see any particular improvements. Mm, I agree. I think there's also um, there's also an issue with how institutional racism is being defined. Um, so I think the report talks about um, or defines it in a way where it defines it in terms of the system being deliberately rigged, yeah. disadvantaged yeah. certain groups. That's an incredibly narrow definition. Yeah. Um, no one is suggesting that there are still laws um, that encourage discrimination or segregation, uh, willful um, prejudice. Mm. Um, but you know, it's, that's just incredible. It's, it's incredibly naive uh, to, to suggest that uh, that because because these laws don't exist, therefore um, institutions are are void or empty of um, of racist racist uh, uh, or you know prejudicial practices, attitudes, beliefs. And I think if we take the more broader, more realistic um, definition, you're then engaging with with the nuanced uh, lived experiences of actual people. And I think a lot of policymakers commit this error in that they're they're so focused on the numbers that they're not really uh, engaged with with the stories behind the, behind these statistics mm. and, and, and trying to understand the underlying causes of of people saying and, and behaving and 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 still believing that these institutions are racist because perception for many people is going to be the reality. Mm. Yeah. It's quite yeah. embarrassing, I think, for the, the people who wrote the report because the, the, they do go on in the report to, to say that people are misusing the term institutional racism and then go on to define it in the wrong way. <laughs> um, it's just poor, it's it's poorly written. It's, it's, it it's terribly written. Um, and again, the, one of the issues, and I, I, I suppose that the same accusation could be levelled at, at David Lammy, although I think not as, as credibly, is that Tony Sewell, who was, who, you know, wrote the foreword and was one of the, the, the commissioned to to lead the writing of this report, is well known for believing that institutional racism doesn't exist. Has spoken out about this um, in the past. So how can we expect the report to be fair or thorough or not leading when the gentleman commissioning the report already has stated that he doesn't believe that this thing exists? Um, to me, again, just seems completely misguided and has done absolutely nothing to help push forward conversations about, you know, how we can start to progress as a society, but has it sort of entrenched these the, the divides that, that, that we have. And um, it seems like it, almost everything the government does, particularly in this area, leads us down the same path in, in that our conversations are framed in, in the way that, you know, the next morning we'll all be watching Good Morning Britain and they'll be talking about uh, whether is is are all Britons racist and they'll have somebody on one side of the argument and somebody on the extreme of the other side of the argument shouting at each other. And that does nothing to, to move us forward um, instead of actually proactively talking about what we can do to, to mm. make the country fairer, better, nicer place to live. Um, yeah. You know, are, are, we, are we really still debating whether racism exists? Really, is that the position that we're we're at? Is that the kind of level of conversation that we're we're still having? It seems, you know, mind-boggling to me. Yeah, for sure. I think the the report in itself is emblematic of institutional racism because it reads as if it's someone who doesn't believe in it in the first place or never intended to even look to see if there was any kind of if they could find any proof of institutional racism. Mm. 
Um, I wanted to point out just quickly, because um, I haven't seen it really uh, brought up in many places, and because of the nature of it, I feel like it's relevant. Um, the, the report seems to... I don't know if blame is the right word, but it sort of passes off the argument that institutional racism exists on young people. I think the term it used was something like well-intentioned, passionate young people. Yeah. When bringing up this argument and saying that it's a a, a, a thing or, you know, obviously arguing that it, that it should be um, tackled. And it's it, that part in particular to me seems incredibly condescending and kind of offensive because they're <laughs> doing exactly what it goes back to what you were saying again earlier, Jack, about it being uh, it, it showcasing various other issues in, that we have as a society. It, it shows once again that the young person's voice doesn't matter, that it's not taken seriously enough that when young people are saying this is a problem we have a problem with this because people are being uh, ignored or are being uh, um, unfairly discriminated against i don't know if you can be fairly discriminated against they're being discriminated against people these people saying that are not being taken seriously they're being saying oh, it's just it's just passionate well well-intentioned young people um, yeah. it's very very condescending that's yeah. my run over, uh, but... no no I, I i agree and i think that again it's there's or there will always be the argument that when young people stand up and talk about something whether it be this or whether it be climate change or whether it be political reform there's the pat on the head and go one day you'll understand mm -hmm. and, and young people's voices are, are pushed to the side and I, I i think you know to toot our own horns a little bit the conversations that we've had with young people people you know people like yourself dylan show that oftentimes we're the ones having the most constructive conversations you know we're avoiding the divisiveness we're looking at, at issues from a proactive point of view we're trying to solve problems by unifying and looking for solutions that help everybody and bring people together and, and oftentimes it's the other way around um and so i, I yeah i do I, I think it's you know indicative of, of the broader issue of not wanting to listen to people who are trying to get involved in the conversation because it doesn't suit the aims of the already entrenched um uh, institutions you know it's it's like it's like uh putting out a, a post on your social media platform saying that you support black lives matter and then discriminating against um black employees in your company uh you know you don't really care about overcoming these issues it, it's just about pr it's about looking good um you know, is the, the case with Amazon at the moment in, in the US, in, in Alabama, is indicative of that um, precise precise thing, I think. Yeah, definitely. Let's move on to our, our second current events topic, which is uh, about the riots that have been taking place in Northern Ireland. Um, so as of today, nearly 90 police officers have been injured uh, in Northern Ireland since the end of March. Um, I was reading into it because I must admit that I wasn't particularly following it uh, religiously um the the people that are causing this violence seem to be mostly gangs made up of young people um including children as young as 12 um that have been um encouraged coerced into into committing criminal activities i saw an article this morning saying that there's a lot of concern about um exploitation of of children uh going on to to commit these acts sort of uh, and uh, obviously, that's, that's definitely of concern. Um, unionist leaders have said the, the violence is linked to loyalist tensions over the Irish sea border. 
um, imposed as a result of the the UK EU Brexit deal. Um, for context, the that deal means that there is currently um, under the Northern Ireland Protocol there is a uh, well Northern Ireland remains in the EU single market for goods, uh, whilst the rest of the UK is left, which basically means that there are checks at ports and airports between Northern Ireland um, and the rest of, well, Great Britain. Um, was this an oversight at all? How did it come to this, basically? <laughs> How did it come to this? Um, I, like, I don't under... Clearly, it's not an oversight. I mean, me and Jack were basically talking about it before. It, it's difficult for... Uh, you. Like, this is something that was debated about for years, the Northern Ireland issue. Um how is it that it's led to this despite all those years of debate? <laughs> it's my question, basically. Try and answer that. If you can. <laughs> Do you want to go have a go at that first, Dylan? <laughs> well, I, I am much, much less uh, well-versed in, in this whole situation. Um, I've only been studying law for, for what, seven months? And um, what I can say is um, I think the, the government, the UK government, has a tendency to um, put off certain uncomfortable uh, conversations if, if it feels as though doing so might just be a way of making the problem go away. I think there is a sense of, um, yeah, that there is a tendency to, to, to try and uh, um, not confront difficult issues. Um, and it, it, it often backfires. And I think this is one of those situations where um, the, the grievance of uh, loyalists has, has reached boiling point. And, you know, there's just a so, there's so much tension and, and the lack of, a lack of consensus, a fair consensus. And I think reaching that consensus is never going to be easy, but avoiding it, which I think uh, the UK government has been guilty of, is not is is not conducive to, to achieving that yeah yeah to come back to what you were saying brett in that it's this is this is in no way an oversight because the government knew that this day was always going to come you know the the government has lied successive governments have lied um about this ever being an issue you know they said there won't be checks uh on the border there won't be any kinds of checks there won't be a border in the irish sea that there, there weren't any other ways of getting around this this issue other than that members of parliament on both sides of the house, political commentators on the left and the right, um, you know, lawyers have all said that this will be an issue. You can't overcome this. Um, and we promised that we wouldn't break the Good Friday Agreement in order to get Brexit over the line. Um, and not only is, is, was, was that a lie, but we also expect there not to be tension um, after that and, and us, for us to be able to point the finger and say well when we screw you over you can't get angry about it and that's in no way justifying any kind of violence but again somebody has to take responsibility um, and I think that when you're aware of how fragile peace in on the border is you don't do anything to tamper with that you know it, it, many many lives were lost um, many, many people were, you know, families were decimated and, uh, you know, it's just a horrific conflict for us to get what 
initially started started as a way to get the conservatives into power which is having a referendum to 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 put peace in in ireland and northern ireland at risk because for, for that reason um to me is unforgivable and i think that tensions will only continue to to be inflamed and this is an issue for the the successive governments will have to deal with so they better get their heads together and figure out how they're going to get over this because um there needs to be unity between the between political leaders you know there's there's more and more tension in in not only uh on the on the isle of ireland island of ireland but also in scotland also in wales also in the north of england about frustration as to how central government devolves powers to those regions and how those those areas have been forgotten um and not just this government but also the opposition need to figure out how they're going to deal with that and how they're going to sell the united kingdom in the future to voters from those those areas because if not um the, the united kingdom is is uh won't be around for much longer you know and, and whether that is done democratically or whether we start to see more violence um where we see start to see violence become more of a regular occurrence uh there needs to be some kind of solution put forward because you know this issue isn't going anywhere and dylan like 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 you said you can't just ignore this stuff and hope that it goes away you know that's what um that's what very very young children do to try and get away from their problems not what uh responsible governments should should do but that's i guess the situation that we're in um so it's worrying you know it's really worrying that, that that's the that, that we're starting to see this now and, it, and the implications that this have are huge you know what will our relationship be with the us joe biden has made it incredibly clear that he will not do any business with the united kingdom if tension in uh ireland flares up again um we've started to see that the us have, have been proactive in trying to lead some kind of, of unity talks um is the government willing to do that what was boris johnson doing on the day that these tensions flamed up he was sat in a cafe in cornwall he wasn't flying out and, and uh, or holding talks with with people. He was having a coffee, right? It's you know, if you don't laugh, you cry. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the that's the position that we're in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we can hope. I, there was an article that came out a few days before these uh, this the violence started, um, saying, uh, I think it was from unionists saying that they didn't expect loyalists to be. Um, loyalists have said they would not be, you know, there wouldn't be any violence, but the tensions were rising. So yeah. I think, hopefully, this is just a case of a select few who have managed to uh, convince some people to go out and or some kids even to go out and throw some uh, Molotovs at the police. Obviously, horrible thing to do, and it shouldn't happen, and it's, there's no justifying it really, but. Um, this, I'm hoping that it's not going to turn into a full-blown, um, you know, yeah. conflict. I mean, the 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 worrying aspect, I guess, and and maybe the argument against that is that it has happened in several cities in and several towns in Northern Ireland. So it's not just uh, limited to one area. But I guess we'll we'll see. I mean, I, there is there there is a, a wider debate around the status. The constitutional status of the UK post Brexit, mm-hmm. yeah. which is from from a legal perspective is fascinating, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. It's incredibly like constitutional law as a module is just huge, 
and there's so so much reading so many cases um and and i just find it i find it incredible that um that during the referendum these issues just weren't discussed like yeah you know the yeah. the, the the potential for uh the human rights act to be repealed post-brexit for example that wasn't something that i heard about um that didn't inform my decision um when when casting my vote and i think that's a huge problem again it stems back to my my passion for for education i think you know there is a tendency uh for for politics and for uh the political process to be quite a mysterious thing um and sure you know we, we all have we, we we all have access to the internet but um the internet is a very difficult place to navigate it's not always clear uh who's telling the truth and i think to expect to expect voters to to just figure it out for themselves um without having like a you know a, 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 like trusted sources uh, to rely on and and yeah i just think you know it's a, it's a huge debate I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out we've all had enough of experts though dylan <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, it's ridiculous yeah. <laughs> it is ridiculous i don't i don't really remember the, the the referendum in itself seemed to go by so quickly the campaigning up to it i, yeah. I don't remember any proper arguments really from either side that seemed well, as important now as they were then i suppose yeah. The, the debate, the discourse was in the bin early on, yeah, though, wasn't yeah, it? I mean, it we were talking about how much money per week we were going to have extra for the NHS, and we were talking about, you know, if we don't leave the EU, we'll have migrants queuing up at the, the border, and, um, you know, the, an MP an MP was shot on the streets yeah. of, you know, this country. You know, like, that's where the discourse was. So the, the possibility of us kind of having a reasoned debate about the constitutional future of the United Kingdom was probably pretty low. However, that's what we obviously should have been talking about. You know, it's like they're the issues, the, imp the important issues that we should be talking about. And the fact that even now we don't really still understand mm. the grand implications of what that means for this country, um, to me, is enough to have, you know, I wasn't old enough to vote in the, in the referendum, but would have been enough to sway my vote. And um, it, it's, it, the fact that we still aren't having responsible conversations about that, I think is, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. And, um, God knows we we need there needs to be some kind of change in the discourse uh, soon because it's 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 not getting any better. Uh, on to quick fire questions. <laughs> <laughs> My um, so the quick fire questions they're they you know just there's like five questions that I ask and the gate the goal is to answer as quickly as possible. Don't worry if you don't. Some of them are not particularly uh, easy to answer quickly. Okay. <laughs> My first one is. Uh, should short-haul internal flights be banned if train alternatives exist? This question is based off of an article <laughs> for context uh, that said that France is planning on banning short-haul uh, flights, domestic flights, uh, between cities to prevent or to, to lower carbon emissions, basically. So they're banning uh, flights from like Paris to various other cities. So I was, but the question is should they be banned here like say a flight from london to edinburgh or a flight from london to to belfast i mean there's no train to belfast but you get what i mean <laughs> i would say yes if the infrastructure is there 
So if the infrastructure makes it possible, then yes, it should be. Obviously, the infrastructure isn't there in this country. It's are far you, from it. Are you advocating for HS2 then? Because... <laughs> no, not necessarily. Don't you put words in my mouth, Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, but better, better train infrastructure is de like definitely something that needs to be on the list. Um, but so yeah, if the infrastructure is there, that'd be my yeah. answer. Dylan, I I'm gonna have to agree with Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so this is to save carbon this is to reduce carbon emissions yes because yeah. supposedly it, it there's less carbon emissions are produced by you know if you take the train from london to edinburgh than there would be if you took a plane from london to, london to edinburgh so that yeah. would be the goal yeah i yeah, why not? sorry yeah i mean i would agree because i don't know if i think the train system in france is a little bit more advanced and i mean they've got their fast bullet trains that go between yeah. like paris and bordeaux or paris and lyon and that so and it takes like two hours so that's basically the time it would take for you to go to the airport get on a plane fly and then get through you know baggage and all that anyway so but i don't think we could do that i, I don't think you could get a train for to from here to edinburgh in two hours and it's kind of the same distance maybe a bit longer but I reckon, yeah, but again, it's it's down to infrastructure, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's it is possible. exactly. So I mean, I'm I, I, I'm I'm near Ebbsfleet, and you can get from Ebbsfleet to the Olympic Stadium, which I do to go and watch West Ham play, in about twelve minutes. You can really? do that in about twelve yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, which is amazing. But, yeah, but then um, to the rest so of it's possible, you, but you, you wouldn't take a plane though from Ebbsfleet to. No, but I'm saying to... <laughs> that if that train is used in the same system, it's, sure, it, yeah. it would be possible. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my next question is, if Russia begins an invasion of Ukraine, should other countries intervene? Militarily? Yes. No. It just depends on how bad it is. If, uh, if um, civilians are getting slaughtered and, you know, it's, you know, like a huge conflict and everything, then, yeah, yeah, I... I I'd say that we should intervene. I don't. I honestly don't know if I have an answer for this one because <laughs> I That's such a cop out. Yeah, it's just, it's such a difficult. I just. I mean, God forbid it happens, but if yeah. the, what are the ramifications then of going to war with Russia? <laughs> like, how many more civilians would die from that? How many more people yeah. would die? Well, from this that? is why. This this is why I'm against foreign military intervention because we have seen what happens when oftentimes the, the, the UK or the US intervene in foreign conflicts and it, it was almost never pretty. Costs a lot of money, lots more civilians die. So, but then you get into the moral argument. The moral right? argument, is, yeah, is, exactly. Is it, yeah, is it your response? Do you have a responsibility to protect? Yes, we do have a responsibility to protect foreign countries. Um, it's one of some of our obligations in the United Nations. Um, so it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I would say that I'm against foreign, foreign intervention. I, I see it as a last resort. I mean, I, I very much pry every other avenue. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. Yeah. And there's a lot more we can do. I think there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more we can do before being pushed to that point. Mm -hmm. um, have we explored all those options? Probably not. And should we be? Yes, absolutely. We should absolutely, be. Yeah. Give Russia ultimatums, you know, say, form, you know, get the union, the Euro European union together, get the US and all that to, to say, look, if, if you 
attack Ukraine, we are going to impose incredibly harsh sanctions on you. Or, or even worse, like, I don't know, I'm not well-versed in that sort of area, but there's got to be some other kind of uh, solution to this issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, we know that there are a sanction routes that, that countries could go down. We know that there are in, like Magnitsky individual targeted sanctions that countries could go down. Yeah, Have those opportunities been explored? Sort of. Have they been explored with China? Sort of. But there's way more that we can do, you know. Yeah. Um, we, we often talk to the folks at yet again UK they have the you know lay out these arguments in such a fantastic way um, it's our responsibility to stand up for human rights around the world and it takes having a backbone like you say it takes coming together having a backbone and saying we won't stand for this and mm. have we done that well enough probably probably not yeah my third question is should social media websites be regulated by government policies yeah, I'd, uh, I'd say yes, um, but of course, in th th it just depends on the type of regulation. I, I don't think governments have the the know-how nor the authority to mandate that people speak a particular way, like compelled compelled speech. I think mean, that that would be taking it too far. But I think creating frameworks that um, allow for um, you know safe. A safe environment, I think, is is helpful in creating sort of guidelines, but not more really strict and and legalistic um, requirements. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I'd completely agree. And I'd j just add on there that these social media companies, particularly Facebook, um, are being currently used again. We come back to the human rights conversation to suppress people's rights. Um, there was a, an article in the Guardian earlier today that was talking about how political leaders. Um, uh, around the world, author authoritarian leaders are using Facebook to be able to um, spread misinformation, regulate the views of individuals, um, and they're completely ignored. These things are completely ignored by Facebook because it has no negative PR ramifications for them. If they uh, are caught doing this, the pressure isn't enough for it to ne negatively impact them. So what's the point in them standing up to an authoritarian leader abroad or not having Facebook in a certain country because it has no ramifications for them. Um, that is unacceptable, I think. And like, again, I would agree we need to be stronger on social media companies, but of course it depends on the kind of regulation. Yeah, yeah, I would agree as well. I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Um, what have you both missed the most since the pandemic started? Going to the cinema. I love my movies. I'm a huge movie buff. That's something I, I mentioned looking... the other day. Yeah. I was, I was really looking forward to watching The Quiet Place 2 and yes. James Bond. Yeah. yeah. Are, are they open again now? Or I'm assuming probably not yet, right? It's the, the next phase, I think. Right. right. Yeah. yeah um, I, I it's mean, a good I, one. It is. Yeah, I was saying to Jack the other day how much I'm, like, I realised I actually miss going to the cinema. It's not something you, it's something you take for granted when yeah. it was uh, when uh, we were you know able to, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mine mine would be so generic. I mean, I'd just say the ability to to you know spend time with close friends and family and have some kind of physical contact and not have to follow social distancing rules. I know that's going to become more of a regular part of our lives, but having that ability to be affectionate with people um, and that lack of actual human interaction is I've, I've really missed that. And at times, that's had a real negative impact on my mental health. To come back to the mental health conversation, mm. um, going to the football, 
again you know that's a big one for me um uh, something that I do with my family and I love doing going to to the football with my mum and my sister and that's like a, we have a ritual and um I've really missed that you know those those kinds of things those ability to go out and do stuff with with family and, and with friends has been yeah that's been it's not been great yeah yeah I think I've probably mentioned it before but like seeing like me going to concerts yeah. something I really miss as well yeah uh, or even going out somewhere to listen to music, even if it's not like necessarily live. But it's just nice to be in an environment where you know there's music playing and uh, you can talk to people and yeah, yeah. I miss that. Uh, but hopefully soon enough that will be a thing again. Yeah. Uh, my, my last question is: How do you like your eggs? <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, preference I like, for? I like them fried. Fried. Yeah. It's yeah. Fried or fried or poached for me. In term, when you have them fried. Yeah. Sunny side up or flipped? Sunny side up. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I'd like to sprinkle some salt and black pepper. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. Maybe some like Make me hungry now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, fried, egg, fried egg on toast. You can't really go wrong, mm. I don't yeah. think. Scrambled egg has been my thing go to recently. The, the problem with other forms of egg is that there's too much risk involved. Like a fried egg is so simple and easy to get right. A scrambled egg you is don't have pretty to think easy. About it too much. Yeah, but I mean, you, you might overdo it. You might over scramble uh, it. You might overdo it with the milk. Or uh, there's all sorts of other stuff you can do. You know, you can add chives and different kinds of seasonings. Poached egg, all kinds of things oh, can that, go yeah, wrong. That, a, definitely. Yeah. A fried egg, you know, salt and pepper, as you say, easy to do. You could burst the yolk. When you fry your egg, it's pretty easy to do. You just have to be delicate. That's not, that's not a nice situation to be in. Yeah, it's not. No, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us today, Dylan. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really, really uh, uh, productive conversation. I've enjoyed it. I'm glad you did. I'm glad. Uh, is there anything you'd like to, to promote at all? I mean, you, you spoke about your uh, your app towards the beginning of the, uh, the podcast, but anything else you'd like to 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 promote yeah so i i, I mean i um, encourage uh, everyone watching to uh, follow omnispace we're all over social media instagram linkedin facebook you know join a community we're, we're constantly having um conversations um much like the one that we had today um but you know if you're interested in business and entrepreneurship we, we've you know have a a wealth of experts who give their thoughts on you know how to start a startup from scratch, how to secure funding, and so many more young people are are having the the boldness to to set something up for themselves, and I think that's a good thing. Great, awesome, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has. has been. Yes, and thank you to everybody who's listened. Uh, we'll see yeah, you cool. next week. Like and subscribe, Brett. Shit. Every time, every time I forget. <laughs> I check out our other videos as well while you're at it. We'll see you next week.